It is Friday, March 12th, 2021. Thank you for tuning in to Misinformed. My name is Max Gomez, and on today's episode, we'll be hearing from visiting fellow Dr. Christina Kwok on her work at the intersection of climate change and girls' education. And then a little bit after that, fellow classmate Lamise Maddie here to talk about a club very near and dear to my heart, the Miss Immigrant Rights Alliance, some events they have coming up later today and throughout the rest of the semester. I had a wonderful time recording these conversations and I hope you find them as enlightening as I did. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Misinformed. Happy last day of the first half of the spring 2021 semester. Spring break starts next week, and I know for many that is a long, long awaited, deserved break. So I hope you all find some time to relax and decompress, and uh, you aren't preoccupied the entire time catching up with assignments that you had backed up until this week, like myself. So I don't have any major news or updates before we get into the interviews for this week, and I, I don't think that any random student council members will be dropping by and Zoom bombing me before we get there as well. So without any further ado, I am so excited to announce our first guest, Dr. Christina Kwok, who is the 2021 Tyler Visiting Fellow in Residence at the Institute right now. She's a non-resident fellow at the Center for Universal Education, the Brookings Institution, and the Associate Director of the Monitoring and Evaluation of Climate Change Education Project. Her previous work has been in the area of promoting rights and equality of girls' education worldwide, including, most recently, examining the link between girls' education and global warming. She co-authored the 2021 report, A New Green Learning Agenda, Approaches to Quality Education for Climate Action, and that is largely what she's here to talk about with us today. Dr. Christina Kwok, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I am actually so, so grateful, so honored for you to join us on this episode, particularly uh, because we are right here at the end of the first week of Women's History Month here in the United States. Um, But then also here at our own little Miss community, it is Motivated March, a wellness challenge, the first ever one we're trying to do. So having this month long focus on on personal health and well-being um, and, and how that extends certainly far past just physical health and well-being. And that is really in line with a lot of the work that you do. Um, and, you know, of course, advancing girls' education around the world is also going to be advancing women's health and well-being. Uh, but then also with your work most recently um, that I myself am most familiar with, uh, taking a more planetary approach to that and the mm-hmm. health and well-being of the whole world. So um, if you could, though, before we get into any of that, if um, if you could... Uh, for the benefit of all of us listening, a bit of your own personal professional history and, and your career up to this point. You know, what drew you to this field, um, and any and if there's any really important milestones to you that you came across that helped, um, you know, shape your career to to what it has been today and what's bringing you to Miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually started with a, a very strong focus um, on sport for development. Um, so my work actually was very much entrenched in sort of health and well-being and sort of understanding health and well-being from a gendered perspective and how international development organizations were using sport to try to sort of um, inculcate some of these values around health and well-being around the world. 
And that work actually led me, you know, very much into studies of how sport is also very much tied to how we view our own futures in some contexts. So where in cases where uh, international development organizations were using sport as a tool to really improve the health and well-being of communities, that communities oftentimes held their own understandings of sport and saw it much more as a ticket to a professional sort of career as opposed to a ticket to a healthier life. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that, in that, in that realm of studies, I, you know, was very drawn to kind of then what is the purpose of education if not to advance one's potential, you know, mobility in society and in international society. And it really got me to ask a lot of questions around education, development, gender, youth perceptions of their futures. Um, And that led me to the study of uh, gender and education um, and took me very in a very roundabout way to the Brookings Institution (laughs) where, where I led their work on girls' education and really, you know, looked at sort of this, the intersection of international development, um, development policy, education policy, gender, and and so on. Um, and that is where I started looking at the intersection of girls' education and climate change and (laughs) the rest is history (laughs) from there, um, so a very, very roundabout way to really thinking about climate change and education and sustainability, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, I, I definitely look at myself and my, my career as being very interdisciplinary and asking a lot of, you know, a, um, a lot of my career being driven by the questions that I'm asking mm-hmm. and, you know, the pro- kinds of problems, the social problems, societal problems and societal challenges that I think could, could, be, could benefit from an interdisciplinary sort of um, investigation. Yeah. And, and actually, that leads me perfectly into my next question, which is the point at which you were able to start imbuing these uh, focus on climate change and environmental justice, really, into your work. And so I was wondering, how did that work its way into it? Was that more of, you know, a, a, something that you had been aware of personally um, for a mm-hmm. while and then made it a part of your professional work? Or had you always had this focus of like, this will be coming? Well, I think it's it's certainly always sort of underlied a lot of the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. So even when I was doing work on sport for development, for example, a big sort of kind of social justice lean to my work was around sort of how sort of a global industrial sport complex was really um, in some ways shaping the lives of young marginalized populations in different parts of the world in ways that you know international development agencies weren't necessarily keying into you know or thinking about as they were you know leveraging a tool like sport as part of their work and so from there you know really kind of understanding how sort of this global uh, structure of global structures of inequality can really seep into what we might think is completely apolitical work, you know, mm-hmm. in this case, sport, right? Um, so I think there's always been sort of a, an attention to this, to sort of underlying social justice issues and how we, you know, how we approach our problems and our, our social problems and that kind of thing. Um, so with, with girls' education and climate change, there was, there's sort of always this attention to, to sort of gender justice issues. Mm-hmm. You know, the field of girls' education is really a, about empowerment and especially of, of girls who are particularly marginalized in their countries and in their communities. And as a result, um, have an increased 
you know, increased set of vulnerabilities. They have an increased risk of, of exploitation and violence and, and that kind of thing. And that, so that, that focus, at least within a gender, girls' education, climate change study, you know, it, it sort of, it, it's rooted in, you know, how do we make this right? You know, mm -hmm. how do we make not only girls' lives better and empowered, but also address climate change? Um, so I think it, it was there and I think it was certainly fueled by the increase in, in public discourse around environmental justice and climate justice, mm -hmm. especially amongst youth climate activists. And I think that certainly has helped to fuel my own interest in it because it sort of validates the need to, to be paying attention to issues of climate justice when we're talking about climate action. It's, it's not just a technical problem. It's, it's very much an adaptive challenge. And as an adaptive challenge, that means to look at how we're thinking and being and doing in the world. And that's, you know, as our current social structures are, are operate, that's, it's, it's a very inequitable sort of way of thinking, doing and being. So yeah, I think it's been there. I just, you know, it hasn't ever really been a very a core, as core of a part of my work as it is now. Mm -hmm. And as I'm, you know, I'm currently in this phase of reading a lot more theory, a lot more, um, you know, just getting a greater understanding of these social systems that we have in place and the systems of oppression that they have created for so many marginalized people. And I think that for a lot of people to it, and by a lot, I mean, um, you know, people who haven't done a lot of reading on those things, even by myself that I still, other than, you know, reading things that you yourself have written, it's like, I'm starting to learn myself the connection between these social issues and environmental. And I think one line that I do want to read out that was that just really stuck out to me, I had to kind of take a minute after I read it in the uh, a Green New Learning Agenda, was the values that drive the domination and exploitation of the natural world, which fuel climate change and increase humanity's vulnerability to zoonotic disease transfer, are the same values that drive the oppression, exploitation and violence against vulnerable groups, especially girls and women. And I also instantly had this thought of, you know, all of those high school textbooks, when we see that picture of manifest destiny, which you know, <laughs> like the large angelic looking woman moving westward. Of course, there's this focus on the peoples. I think there's indigenous peoples there who are kind of running away, but there's also uh, the land looks different where mm. they're heading. And there are, you know, I think there's a few animals that are fleeing as well. And I think that um, that, that sentence there from your uh, new Green New Learning agenda really highlights that as well. Is like, let's look to some of the other things that the same systems of oppression have, um, you know, allowed us to dominate just the land that we're living on. And so mm. I was wondering in that connection, is there something that you see that it, between um, gender equality, gender justice, and environmental justice that, of course, that is that is the work that you came from, and so that's why it mm -hmm. was a focus of your work here. But are there any other social issues that you see having per perhaps just as strong of a connection mm -hmm. uh, with environmental? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I certainly stumbled upon this. I mean, from you know, sort of a girls' education entry point, not realizing that there was a whole body of literature out there around ecofeminism that really drew these connections. And so, for me, um, I mean, yes, I think there, there's, I think, I mean, such the, the beauty of this sort of inter interdisciplinary work is that you, you, you really find in unexpected places connections. Right and connections between ideas, connections between different ways of viewing the world that really kind of birth something new. 
And so I, I, I love um, kind of trying to understand how, how, how some, you know, our, our views around one thing really can help us understand something very differently in another space, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, other examples of this, I think, I mean, when we look at, I think, justice issues, I think those examples just, you know, they, they just flourish because mm-hmm. when you think about health, for example, and we typically think about health in this very sort of sterilized medical space, when in reality, it is so intertwined with not only environment, um, but, you know, psychology, mental health, um, and it's, it's certainly tied in with, um, you know, gender norms as well. And it just, it, it's, um, I think, I think health is a really great space for really thinking interdisciplinary because, you know, I think, I don't know, I don't want to say centuries, centuries of sort of boxing it into a very medicalized sort of a certain kind of evidence-basedness, you mm-hmm. know, like a certain kind, prioritizing certain kinds of evidence and disregarding other types of evidence certainly tells us that we, we, we can't come to a problem with a singular paradigm, right? We have to be thinking about how interconnected things are. And I think right. health really shows us how to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many dimensions that affect our well-being, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm glad you mentioned ecofeminism, too. I mean, the existence of that word really mm-hmm. highlights the connection between these two, the social justice issue and this environmental justice issue, too. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if I don't want to get too much into the specifics of um, what you have in a Green New Learning Agenda, because I'd much rather prefer that all of the people listening go read it for themselves. <laughs> it is truly wonderful. And just to to, I think this may be my second or third plug of this class, but <laughs> Anne Campbell's Comparative International Education class is truly one of my favorites. And within that, this was one of my favorite readings we had assigned to us. Um, so I, in, um, like I said, not getting too much into the specifics, but I was wondering if there are any significant identifiers that you have seen that connects the environmental and gender justice issues. Mm-hmm. And by significant identifiers, do you mean like particular kinds of concepts from from this thinking? I guess I was thinking more in terms of any sort of like data you've seen, general trends that you that yeah. we can all go see that it's like, ah, it is clear that when we advance girls' education, we advance um, you mm-hmm. know, climate climate change issues. Yeah. Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly. Okay. So in thinking about, for example, I'll just say so so the the New Green Learning Agenda outlines three different ways of thinking about education and its sort of intersections with climate change and its intersections with gender equality and with climate justice. So one of those approaches uh, is really focused on how we might think about our technical education. And really thinking like, you know, that could be career and technical education in the U.S. or it could be technical vocational education training um, in other parts of the world. And how, you know, when we think about the need to, let's take um, President Biden's current sort of focus on um, ensuring that environmental justice communities have access to the kinds of resources that will enable them, that will empower them to really not only address the underlying challenges that they're facing, but then do so in a way that helps bring about prosperity, economic prosperity, right? Or thinking about um, displaced fossil fuel communities and how, you know, really we need to be thinking about workforce training initiatives that help enable their, their transition to a cleaner economy, right? So if you, think, if you think about that as sort of the framing, 
And we think about, well, what are our assumptions when we go into this kind of workforce development or this workforce training? And what are we, you know, who are we targeting? And what types of jobs are we targeting? But those assumptions really begin to narrow our possibility for action to really just those potential sectors or industries that are already potentially male dominated to continue to, to be male dominated, right? We don't think about, for example, expanding our definition of green jobs to include things like care jobs mm-hmm. you know, that, that are equally important to um, in improving our adaptive capacity and our climate resilience because, you know, for example, the healthcare field is vitally important as we've seen in you know, COVID-19, as we've seen with the wildfires in California to being the first responders to disasters, right? And so if we're not thinking about how do we ensure that when we're thinking about workforce development and this just transition to a greener economy, if we're not thinking about healthcare as part of the green economy, we're gonna miss out on a, a very big sector, a very big industry that's also that also happens to be quite female dominated, especially when you look mm. at sort of the nursing professions and, and so on. If we're not thinking about care, um, care work in terms of education and childcare, these are extremely important to our ability to inform the next generation and the present generations as well around the importance of sustainable, sustainable behaviors or sustainable worldviews and more socially equitable relations with others and with our environment. And so if we don't think about how potentially our sort of gendered biases around what is green or what is a green job, that we could be undercutting our ability to transition to a green economy because we're only focused on the high tech, the, the tech innovation and the carbon sequestration methods, which are important, but they're not the only uh, sort of workforce solutions, right? Or, or, or a green sector solutions. So I think that's sort of one example of kind of how, you know, coming to this with, you know, thinking about gender, thinking about um, justice and thinking about environment and thinking about education all come together to show us new ways of thinking about how we could address things like, you know, President Biden's plan for a just transition to a green economy. Yeah. And that also takes into, I mean, moves really well into another question I had for you too, which is that like I currently, the reading that I'm drawn to at this point in my life is much more theory based. It's it's very up in the clouds and it's very hard to see how that actually transitions down into the work that can actually happen and actual actionable things. And that is another reason why I loved this uh, a new green learning agenda so much is because that is the step. I mean, it's the praxis right there in the middle. It's helping take all of these, you know, theories that I personally find so important for us to, to pay attention and care about and help it move a little bit closer down to earth and what we can do. Um, but still leaves, you know, it gives a really, really great framework for how we can move forward and turn it into the actionable things that may be different from place to place. I mean, we have such different um, environments all throughout just our own country. So, you know, Mm -hmm. the types of education that this will uh, be is, of course, different across countries, but it'll even be different across different communities within the United States. And so I just was wondering, you know, what is your approach to that kind of work and and taking these up in the clouds theories and ideas and bringing them down to earth and things we can really do right now to start advancing towards these these idealistic futures we really hope to achieve. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I appreciate your 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 kind words there. I was just in a conversation this morning where somebody was like, you know, I really not to hurt your feelings, but I really couldn't understand it. I was like, oh crap, <laughs> you know. So I think there are varying varying levels of mm -hmm. sort of applicability and 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 praxis that that are out there. Um, so I appreciate your your comments. Um, so I think I think that but that that defines that defines the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. It's that you know there's this you know wonderful theoretical work that goes on, but then oftentimes practitioners have such a hard time understanding what's what's the meaning. You know what's right. how do you put that into how do you operationalize that? And so I think a lot of the work that I have been doing, at least um, at Brookings, is you know really trying to act as that translational researcher, um, which I think requires. I don't. I can't say that I do it well, but it definitely requires some degree of understanding of you know what uh, what what moves decision makers, right? And because mm -hmm. it's not always evidence. You can put as much evidence in front of somebody, but it doesn't necessarily make the move. And we certainly see that with climate change. It's it's the why. Why do we need to act? And and how you can convince your 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 stakeholder, your decision maker to act. That I think is is kind of where the, this translational space. Um, is really is really focused on. So, you know, I think, you know, part of the work for at least for the new green learning agenda was really first and foremost trying to synthesize a huge body of work and to try to make sense of, you know, how these different disciplinary approaches have come to conceptualize something like green skills. What is green skills versus from from this community versus another community in another one? And then, you know, after understanding what their what what their perspective is and what their contribution is to to understanding this phenomenon, then what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, something that I, I, I certainly at least um, have come to realize is, is, you know, there's nothing bad about like a heuristic or a step-by-step <laughs> -step here guide, you know, set mm -hmm. of checklists or guidelines, because when it comes to, you know, in many cases, you know, a busy policymaker who just needs to know what do I need to do? Like those tools can be extremely beneficial. But then as a researcher, I'm like, oh, my God, you can, you should not ever like boil something down to such simplicity because <laughs> uh -huh. it's, everything is nuanced, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so that for me has always been the struggle, how to how to create something that's simple and actionable, yet also nuanced enough that it, you know, um, ju does justice to, to the, the theory and the context dependency of so many so many of our problems and solutions. So I think I might have trailed a little bit off of your original question, but I, I, I think, you know, the the, the challenge, at least um, in you know coming down from thirty thousand feet with mm -hmm. you know the this the views and the theory and, and that sort of thing and and really thinking about how does it get implemented this is I guess the the beauty of sort of this kind of policy level research work is really just trying to understand how do you understand your audience and what the, and how to frame the problem in a way that's understandable how to frame what the cost of inaction is mm -hmm. and then you know, what are, like, what does the evidence suggest we should be doing? And, and to say that in, you know, less than the hundred or so pages of that report. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and so it, it, this came up a lot in, in your answer just to that question, but it, it's, we've touched on it a couple times throughout so far. The ideas presented here, um, the, the importance of advancing the rights of um, I want to say women, but also non-binary as well. Really, you're just not mm -hmm. uh, moving away from a male-dominated society, really. And then mm -hmm. also um, advancing towards a, a greener future, towards restoring some of the damage we've done to our environments. They don't seem to me like things that should be politicized. Mm -hmm. I, I hope 
to anybody who who spends enough time reading these ideas and uh, the connections between these ideas and practice that it shouldn't seem to be something that has to be political. But unfortunately, especially within yeah. this American context, uh, it has been politicized. There are climate change deniers. Um, there mm-hmm. are people still fighting against the rights of women. And so I was wondering, when talking about um, this work that you do, what are some of the strategies you go about to try and separate it back out from that and, and mm-hmm. try and remove the politicization that you know people will probably so quickly relate it to American politics? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I have I have these conversations uh, a little bit too, more than, more than I would like. And I think, well, okay, so first, maybe in, in, in trying, to re- trying to respond to this, I'll point to the wonderful work that the Yale Center for Climate Communications does. I think, I, I can't remember the exact name, I think it's the Yale Center for Climate Communications or the Program for Climate Communications. They've done this really great work kind of parsing out the six Americas, hmm. right? And sort of how to how to conceptualize the different audiences that you could be potentially speaking to. And that could go from, you know, the deniers all the way to the highly concerned, right? So you look at the spectrum. And when you look at where people sort of fall along that, you know, I guess maybe um, in, an, uh, in, a, in a sort of, relieving way or in an optimistic way, you know, mm-hmm. more increasingly more and more Americans are falling in into that, you know, middle to concern, you know, con- highly concerned kind of space. And so I think in some ways you have to think about who is your audience. And if we're not going to agree on a fundamental level that girls and women and non-binary people, everybody has a basic set of human rights and that they must be respected. I'm probably not going to get across to you anyways. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is not to, not to disregard this portion of the population, but to say that my message and the action that I'm trying to seed and to spur from that, those messages is really speaking to a specific part of the population. Mm-hmm. And by getting, and I think what the idea is, we need to, you know, we gradually move the bar, right? We gradually move the bar, move our, move our sort of, um, our stand, or what I'm thinking of what, what that word is. <laughs> I totally lost the word. We're really thinking about moving the bar, right? Let's, yeah. let's lift the bar little by little by little. And so if I can, by speaking to the, the middle mm-hmm. or speaking to the, the folks that are, you know, highly concerned about climate change and who understand these connections, we could potentially begin to, to do some of the policy work and some of the social norms change work that normalizes what, you know, should be normal, but is is seen as, you know, potentially really progressive or overly radical. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't do that work to, to shift and, and, and lift up our bar, our standard, right, then we're going to forever try to cater to a, popula- a portion of the population that we're just not going to see eye to eye on. I think there's certainly space for that work. There's certainly space for the, the need for bridging. And, and demonstrating how, even though we might politicize specific aspects of, of the, you know, the, the work, that there are some areas that we can agree on. You know, um, you know we wanna make sure that everybody's educated. Yeah, m- m- we might not say a particular kind of education, but we wanna make sure that there's education, right? It, it, there, there are ways to do the bridging work. But this work, and, and, I, and I say this because I use the words like, you know, radical transformation, feminist, you know, unapologetically feminist, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, 
you know, feminist planetary consciousness, like things that would certainly create a visceral reaction <laughs> from climate deniers, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or from a particular portion of the population. And, and, I, and I made that conscious decision that we were going to use these words because we really need to be lifting the bar mm-hmm. and we need to be, you know, achieving at a bare minimum, you know, a, a level of, of climate justice and a level of gender equality and a level, a level of gender justice. So it's not a great answer. I, I, I certainly know, especially for somebody who likes to do a lot of a consensus building and bridge working, it's not the best way to approach this kind of potential, not, you know, potentially not the best way to approach this. But I think if, if, we, if we disagree from the beginning about basic fundamental rights, I'll find another message for you. <laughs> I, I think that's a wonderful point to make too. I mean, just distinct, distinguishing from the way I think that I framed the question is that you're at the other end, you're advancing these conversations and pushing us to where we need to go. And we really don't have mm-hmm. much time left to not advance mm-hmm. it. As far as getting everybody else on board, that's that's important work for other people to do. Yes. <laughs> but we can't yeah. spend our time all of us focused on the middle and getting yep. people into it before we move forward. Somebody yep. needs to keep pushing the conversation and everybody yep. else will catch up eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And I think something that speaks to that too, which you touched on earlier is youth activism. Um, I heard it come up in, mm-hmm. in the Q and a with you last week as well. And mm-hmm. so I wondered what are your thoughts regarding your work specifically when you see this intense focus of, you know, these teenagers now uh, I, I used to use, I was not very, conscious of issues of human rights, civil rights, environment, when I was in high school. And I used that as an excuse for a long time. Like, well, I was just in high school. And now I'm seeing what the kids now are focused on. I'm like, great, you've taken that away from me. I could have cared about it back then too. Um, but it really is. And, it, and I think, so, yeah, I just, what are some of the things that you think of when you see that happening? And like, well, this is the conversation we're having now around these issues. Yeah. But geez, I mean, when these, these kids are of voting age, we might be in a totally different place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm certainly in the same boat with you. When I was in high school, I was not political at all. I was not, I, I didn't care about anything beyond my little bubble of like, what do I, you know, how do I survive this mm-hmm. thing called high school kind of thing? <laughs> um, so, so but, but at the same time, you know, I think in, I don't know if this is naivety or what it is, but the fact that so many, so many young people, are, are coming to this issue, I think speaks so much to what adults are not doing. Cause like, is it youth is the time for you to not have a care in the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's about exploration. It's about, you know, self-development. It's about, you know, really coming into being and the fact, and, and you know, and the, and the big problems of the world is what the adults in the, in the room do. Really, that's supposed to be where they're supposed to be focused. Right. And maybe this is just where I'm naive and why I spent my high school years not thinking about uh-huh. things like this. Um, but the fact that so many youth around the world are coming to this issue is because the adults in the room aren't doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And if they're not speaking up, it's their future that's at stake. And the adults are, adults are, aren't doing what they're, they're, they're responsible for, which is to really, you know, to look out for the future generations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired and optimistic by the youth, but just like Greta Thunberg has said, like, I should be in school right now. I should not be skipping school, mm-hmm. right? Which is exactly the point. Like, you know, the adults in the room aren't doing their job. And so the youth are doing it. Yeah. And all the more power to them for doing it. But it's just, a, it's a shame on you message mm-hmm. to all the adults. Yeah, I think that's a great point. This is much more of an existential problem to them now than it ever has been to generations prior. Mm-hmm. I think 
I remember, you know, when you see numbers like, well, if we don't reach this marker by 2030, there will be irreversible damage in yeah. the future. And so yeah. for us, we see like, okay, well, 2030, that's the marker. If we don't hit it, you know, the rest of my life won't be significantly affected. But they see those and they're like, that's most yeah. of my life. Yeah. So I think that's a great point that uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the sense of urgency that they feel that the generations prior just might not have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, that is just about all of the the big burning questions I had for you too. <laughs> I'm so happy again that you were able to join us and and have this discussion with me. If we could leave off on one uh, finer point, circling back around to the uh, health and wellness focus that Miss has right now, if you had any one activity or tip for people to integrate into their daily life to advance their own personal health and well-being. Now, this could be, you know, something like a practice of mindfulness or a physical mm-hmm. activity or, you know, we're all tied to our computers and sometimes I have to force myself to go walk around the block a little bit. But if there's anything mm-hmm. that you do that has been really fundamental to your maintaining health and, and well-being that we could all start to try and practice ourselves. Yeah. Oh, I am a terrible, terrible case for this. Um, <laughs> I... I have, I have gotten to the point where I must schedule in my time for myself, whether that's, you know, a five minute, just check out and just, you know, do nothing or, you know, setting up reminders on my watch to, you know, to get a workout in or to do something that's just away from, from zoom. So if I, so if I could provide advice it would definitely be you know do as i say not as i do um but for sure you know to to create that space for yourself to recognize that the world will keep going if you're not at your computer doing something mm-hmm. you know and um to not get into the space where i am where i'm just you know not carving out that space i think that that yeah, this is a reminder i guess to really recognize that your health you, you know you can't you, it's kind of like the putting on the oxygen mask, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't put on the oxygen mask for yourself, you're not going to be able to help somebody else. Mm, true. So true, true. I think that like, keep that in mind um, because your health, your own health is absolutely paramount to what you can do for others. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe to remember that. I think that's so perfectly puts a bow around our whole conversation. And so once again, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me. I, it was just a, a pleasure to speak with you today. Likewise, Max. Thank you so much for having me. As mentioned throughout our conversation, Dr. Kwok is the co-author of a new green learning agenda, which is open source and can be found with a very quick Google search. So I highly encourage any listeners to go give that a look. And for anyone out there listening within the early March 2021 timeframe, Dr. Kwok will be here throughout the next several months at Miss. Uh, so make sure to look out for her appearances in classes, club events, and other institute goings on throughout the next few months. My next guest is a classmate, fellow Mira club leader, and personal friend here to talk about an event that I am so excited to help promote. Lamise, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I asked you here because of your position as uh, communications director. Is that what it is? Right. I feel like yeah. we all get mixed up with our leadership positions yes. at Mira, but yes. Okay. Communications director <laughs> for the Miss Immigrant Rights Alliance. Uh, but you're of course much more than that as well. So uh, students, other things that you do, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. So my name is Lamise Maddie and I'm currently an IPD student at Ms. 
and my focus is on migration and and um i also study arabic as well and i guess migration and mid or mira is obviously like natural path for me to go to and um i would say that's mostly because i myself am libyan american so having an immigration story and then also studying it it's all like put together <laughs> mm-hmm. so you were born there then in libya i was born in the uk okay in scotland gotcha and then at what point did you move here to the us uh do you want me to tell you like the story it, of, it, like... it can't it can't yeah yeah let's do it absolutely so my parents uh left libya from after libya got embargoed and mm-hmm. so they were basically like on the last ship out and so when they moved they moved to britain because they had a friend that was able to get them a visa there mm-hmm. and then they had me perfection and <laughs> <laughs> then we from there my parents didn't really feel like britain was like the place for them so they moved to canada and my brother was born in toronto and then my dad was applying for residency to become a doctor so he applied for both Canada and uh, the United States. And so he was just figuring out which one is which or which one he'll get. So then he got America first. And so he w- we moved to Connecticut. And I'm like, the story so long. Literally, we moved from Connecticut to Connecticut. And then to be able to come, become a citizen, they told him it would be best to work in the low income area. So he went to Montana and we we all moved there. So I grew up like in Montana and we were going to become citizens but then um or we're supposed to get our green card and then 9-11 happened and so there was like a Mm -hmm. presidential order like we literally like got accepted two weeks before 9-11 and then we had to redo the whole process and we got our green cards in 2006 and then we moved to kansas city then and i became a citizen in 2012 the year i graduated from high school (laughs) oh wow so I thank you for sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. So I've asked you to chat with me here today to talk a little bit about an event that Mira has coming up tomorrow for us, but later today for anybody listening tomorrow, and possibly in the past for anybody who puts off listening to this episode. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what that event is? Yeah, so we will be Mira will be hosting this event called Mira Who's Cooking, and it's going to be hopefully a consecutive event that happens hopefully maybe once or twice a month. And Mira Who's Cooking is a really interesting idea that we all kind of formed together. And it's about like bringing the things that are really beautiful about being an immigrant, which is like cuisine and storytelling into one kind of event. And I like it. I like the idea a lot because I think it's also really cool that we added in the perspective of like people cooking with us. And so Tomorrow we'll be cooking, or I guess today we'll be <laughs> we'll be making a shakshuka, which is a North African cuisine. And other countries also have uh, a variant of shakshuka. They might even call it something really different. But ours is like has its own. It's I think it's its own thing in its own right because it has its own type of flavor. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really excited to share that with everybody. So shakshuka, the North African version of the dish that you'll be cooking tomorrow. You've told us you're of Libyan descent, but what does this dish mean to you if there's anything more than just, well, it's it's native to where you're from. I mean, is there more of a story for it to you, for you personally? Um, 
I would say yes. I grew up with shakshuka and it was something that we always made either for breakfast or for dinner. Um, it's kind of a meal that you can make whenever just because it's like it's eggs and you eat it with like traditionally we would make one plate of it and everyone would get some bread and like all eat from the same plate. Mm -hmm. So it's a very like communal familial type of dish. It's not one that's like maybe it's not like an independent dish, if that makes any sense. Um, It's very like sharing. And I grew up with, with it being like a cornerstone of my, like of the cuisine that we made at home. So like Mm -hmm. when I think of shukshuka, I honestly think of like my mom, I think about my, my home. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your mom there too, because I did want to connect the spirit of this event um, to the National Women's History Month that's happening. And that, you know, you also mentioned, I think a little bit there, it's like how important food is to so many cultures, I would say almost every. Um, and then especially in, in immigrant stories in sharing food, sharing stories as a way to share your culture with people who are from outside that, that culture. And so, so frequently are these traditions of food, which are so central to a lot of cultures passed down through women. Yes. I would say that food, food, women, and, and immigrant, like the nexus of like food, women, <laughs> and immigrants, I, I think is a pretty, is pretty strong. I think almost every immigrant I've ever met has a story with, with their mom or their grandmother, or they themselves, like, I know a lot of immigrant women such as myself, like have a story of like learning how to cook really young and having the skills of like spicing things. Like, I feel like that's something like every immigrant woman is just really good at. (laughs) Like like, no need for cups or tablespoons or any of that. It's literally like eyeballing it and Mm it always comes like out perfect. And (laughs) I think it's awesome because it's also like women in general, like women migrants in general make up like more than 50% of migrants that come to the U S and, and actually like globally. Mm-hmm. And so they, they play like a really important, they're such important people within that space. Yeah, absolutely. And as somebody who's now at this point studying it academically, I actually wasn't aware of that statistic that you just said it's over half. Uh, is there mm-hmm. any particular I don't know, reasons for that? Or I guess theories for reasons for that? Um, when I was reading about it, the things that I was kind of getting from it was that they make up over half because I think that there's more need for, for work outside of their home countries. So Mm -hmm. a lot of women come to other countries for domestic work or Mm -hmm. for caregiving. So a lot of that happens as well as, um, in the sex industry as well. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of a multitude of different industries that women are in, migrant women are in. Um, and so I'm not really sure why specifically it's more than half, but I think that there's, there might be more of a need for them to, for different jobs. Maybe they are unable to work at their jobs back. It's a lot of it is job attainment. So I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that a lot of them probably can't work what in whatever sector they want to in their home country. So they um, migrate to another country to, to in order to find work, which is honestly job attainment is like the number one reason why people migrate in general, like yeah. women or men or any other gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now 
Is there anywhere uh, outside of your own Instagram story feed where somebody could go if they wanted to just start learning more about these, staying more on top of um, news regarding these sorts of issues? Like, I mean, any like it could be just an Instagram account because they've become super great sources of information, depending on which ones you're going to or news sources, anything in particular where you could point someone towards just like, hey, pay attention to this if you want to know more. Mm, I would definitely say like one is I think really good if you are an immigrant and there's an account for uh, I really love it it's for women who are first generation or sorry first if you're like the first daughter and immigrant family they have like an account it's a support group and I honestly love it because I think that being the first daughter of an immigrant family is such a unique actual like unique experience because I don't Mm -hmm. think like everything that I read about it I'm like wow it really is kind of extremely unique to to like the experience of being an immigrant in general yeah I would say probably any like if you can take the time to follow like NGOs as well like Mm -hmm. IRC I really like they Mm -hmm. um, have a lot of great information on on Instagram and I think information that's pretty like accurate IRC being um, the Intercultural Resource Center? Is that? I just looked up IRC. Oh, no, sorry. IRC, International Refugee Committee. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think. There's also one for Arab or North African Im- immigrants that I thought was really good. They're all my, the ones that usually I follow are pretty niche to like mm-hmm. my immigrant experience. But there is also uh, an immigrant. Um, uh, first generation I think it's like called first generation immigrant like education uh, page and they offer like tons of scholarships and like different like venues of trying to like attain an education and they also offer a lot of like educational resources about like immigration in general mm-hmm. well so one other connection that I mean we've already discussed for this event I guess this is a bit more of an overt connection we have going on with this is that uh to the motivated march wellness challenge we've made this an official like co-sponsored event um, within the wellness challenge and people can go and get points for their teams for attending so i'm i'm asking you to essentially paraphrase me here because this was my initiative to make it a connected event but in, in your opinion what's the connection between motivated march the wellness challenge and this mira who's cooking live stream event I would say that there actually is a lot of connection between um, kind of the two different things or they're not even that different. They're honestly, I think they're pretty synonymous, like being an immigrant and health and wellness is like interchange, like they are really important because a lot of, especially immigrant, like if you want to talk about like specifically immigrant women usually end up being more vulnerable towards like health risks, like Mm -hmm. they have more health risk vulnerability and also just being an immigrant in general like because of language barriers because of certain things sometimes access to healthcare is much more difficult for immigrants and on top of it like even if you are first or second generation there you might be you know having there's a lot of immigrant issues of like kind of understanding mental health as well mm-hmm. because it's sometimes not necessarily it's not, I don't want to say that mental health is not in other regions or other countries or other peoples, but I think like that there are some places and some people that have, that there, it is a stigma within a culture. So there's, I I think that um, health and wellness is like so intertwined into the whole immigration process. 
uh, I mean, like, like they say, immigration is like a whole process. It, even if you are first or second or third generation, sometimes you might still be seen as an immigrant. So it's like, all of those things are really intertwined into that experience. And so um, as so far and as this specific, like, actual event, I think that there's a lot of great things that you can get from it, which is one, the happiness of eating shikshuka, which <laughs> it's a delicious dish. And two, it's also extremely healthy. And there's also ways to make it vegetarian or vegan if you want to. It's a really creative and like very flexible type of dish. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's why so many cultures have it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I you know, I think to your, to your point about mental health and not that we're getting into the business of comparing whose culture is better at it, but I'm going to say, I don't think we here in the States are really doing a great job at it. It's getting better. Yeah. That's for sure. It's mm -hmm. getting better. But, uh, but I'm happy you brought that up too, because that is, you know, the whole point of the month is to look at it holistically, health and wellness. That's why we mm -hmm. didn't call it a fitness challenge. You know, it's not just about these <laughs> ideas of what health and wellness looks like. There's so many different ways. And, um, and yeah, I mean, when it comes to this event, specifically with Mira who's cooking I see it as so many different I mean one's personal you know feeling a connection to your your cultural heritage that is a huge part of well-being too you know people get you know huge I don't know like to silo it specifically in mental health but it's just I think I just think that's a big part of of wellness as well um mm -hmm. and and that sense of community when you can come together and and hear this person's experience share stories share food um absolutely it fits right into it so I was going to say, I think that the key word that you said there is connection. And I think that's like, I mean, even in these like times or whatever, I feel like connection is such a natural thing that we all want. And I think that helps with, with mental health. I mean, I think that's probably why that is why health and wellness is like so important because it allows you to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. We <laughs> hope to see everybody, if not tomorrow aka tonight being friday the 12th of march then in future mira who's cooking events because there will be more throughout the semester yes and there may be some really fun people that will be coming hopefully yeah yeah Cross the fingers. excited <laughs> we're excited for it that's all for this week's episode as always thank you so much for listening the opinions expressed in this episode by myself or my guests do not represent that of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies overall. And uh, yeah, that's all. Hope you all have a wonderful spring break and I'll see everybody on the other side. <laughs>